Hey peeps, as promised, we have a second instalment of last week's podcast on uh, some of the introductory themes of Colossians. This week could be considered extras for experts, which I don't know if you had at your school, but they, my teachers when I was in primary school always had extras for experts sheets for the smarmy kids who finished everything. Uh, really quickly and then wanted to get on to proving how much better they were than any everybody else and for those of us who are easily distracted we never got on to extras for expert sheets but um, maybe this is your time to shine listen to this podcast uh, some of you will find the languages stuff really intriguing um, others of you aren't won't be so interested but that's okay we can handle that we're moderately secure people we were very lucky to have Amy Barretta talk about why Paul used language the way that he did. One of the major pieces of feedback that we got uh, on the pieces of paper from our community was um, questions about why Paul uh, is so floral in his language and uh, why he doesn't just get to the point a little bit faster. And we discussed a little bit in the previous episode, uh, slash talk, whatever you want to call it, about um, a thing called rhetorics, and we're not going to tell you too much about rhetorics because Amy will cover some of it, uh, but just to say that Paul used a form of argument called deliberative rhetorics, and if you want to know more about that, you can Wikipedia it, and they have some interesting stuff on it there. So the real question we're dealing with is why did Paul structure the letter the way he did, and why did he use language the way that he did? Now, some of that is lost on us because... He uses lots of uh, words that end with the same kinds of sounds. And, of course, we're reading an English translation of uh, Koine Greek, so we don't get to appreciate lots of that. So some of his stuff just comes out really, really rambling. Uh, and a lot of it involves heaps of hyperbole, which is suspicious postmodern people. Uh, we are very cynical about anyone who tries to um, hype anything up too much. But... The Colossians weren't living in our world, they were living in theirs. And what we want to explore today is why would this letter have sounded so convincing to them? Why did he go about it in the way that he did? And so, without further ado, we're going to skip to Amy Beretta talking about Asiatic rhetorics. Enjoy! Hi, this is Amy, and Shane has asked me to do a section on the Asiatic style in Greek rhetoric. Um, the better to help us understand what in the name of sanity Paul is doing in Colossians. A disclaimer, I'm not an expert in classical Greek rhetoric. Um, I have, however, googled most extensively, and therefore everything I say will no doubt be 100% correct. Let's begin with a look at the context. Uh, the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire before it um, was a debating culture. Argument was both an art form and a spectator sport. Um, Travelling teachers known as sophists would go around the cities and the countryside um, having public debates, and um, those who did well could make themselves very famous and wealthy. Uh, and winning was not necessarily determined by the, the strength or sensibility or logic of the argument. Form was at least as important as content. Um, but what that meant, what was meant by um, good form, changed from place to place according to the school of thought that you followed, according to the style of rhetoric 
that was being adopted and used. There were uh, two main... There was one, a main division in the styles of rhetoric at the time. Um, in the western side of the empire, there was what's known as the Attic style, which has nothing to do with the tops of houses, um, but rather it refers to um, a style that was a return to the classical Greek oratory, highly um, conservative, measured, formal, logical. Um, in the eastern side of the empire in Asia Minor, um, they were using what came to be known as the Asiatic style. Uh, now, within the Asiatic style, there, were, uh, there was another division. Uh, in the first Asiatic style, um, it favoured neat, pithy little sayings, um, short and clever, witty and charming. Um, Paul gives a good example of one of these in 1 Corinthians 6.13, where he um, quotes a saying of the time, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. It's a pithy little epigram, and the audience is very impressed. I call this the oh-snap style of rhetoric. To wit, less is more. Now, in the other Asiatic style, um, you might say more is more. But then somebody who follows this rhetorical style wouldn't say that at all. That would be far too short and to the point. Instead, they might say that proper speech for the gratification of the speaker, the edification of the listener, and the glorification of the subject must, at all times and by any cunning device of form and meaning, strive in every way to dazzle the senses, entrance the mind, capture the emotions, and thereby make beauty truth and truth beauty. Or whatever. This second Asiatic style will be very familiar to anyone who's ever read a Pauline epistle. It's verbose, poetic lyrical, complex, and emotional. It has a few key features which I'll outline briefly. First, there are frequent, shameless appeals to emotion, long and complex sentences, especially periodic sentences, which I'll explain later, parallelism, where elements of similar meaning or structure are mirrored, um, unnecessary redundancy, rhythm within sentences or syllables, wordplay, wit, irony and humour, and pleasing sound and impression were privileged over precision of meaning. Now, these last three, the rhythm, wordplay and um, beautiful sounding language, are unfortunately lost to us in translation. But the others we do encounter and um, sometimes come up against and find them quite alienating because... It, it's a very unfamiliar way of communicating. We have vastly different expectations of the way information is going to be presented. And we can find ourselves asking, like, Paul, why am I reading this? Could you please get to the bloody point? So let's try to unravel what the bloody point is. And to do that, um, we can look at some examples in context. And that context is the first part of Philippians chapter 2, which reads... So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This one's a cracker. Starts out with some blatant emotional manipulation. Yes, Paul, of course there's encouragement in Christ. Of course there's affection and sympathy. Leading us neatly into agreeing to whatever he says is dependent on those things. 
Moreover, verses 1 and 2 here are one big long sentence full of commas and ifs and ands and buys, and what are we supposed to make of it? If you prune the flowers off this sentence, you find that it's actually really simple. The start of verse 2, complete my joy. That's the main clause, the main idea. What comes before it is if blah 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 then, telling you why to do this thing. And what follows is how to do it, by blah 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 blah. This is what's called a periodic sentence, where the punchline is delayed, building suspense and creating really strong emphasis. Sometimes the point's left right to the end, and Paul seems to like putting it in the middle and having this beautiful balance with the supporting ideas. But for those of us unfamiliar with this style, it can be easy to get lost amongst the flowers. Within this section, we find some great parallelisms as well. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. And the purpose is to highlight them, to highlight the similarity of meaning with the similarity of structure. Later in verse 4, we find another parallelism. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Where here, um, we're contrasting the ideas by mirroring the form. And lastly, redundancy. At the end of verse 1, we see any affection and sympathy. Now, what's the difference there? Do we need to go through the Greek with a fine-tooth comb to discover a crucial distinction? No, Paul's just being emphatic. He's saying the same thing again in another way, in order to get across its importance. He does it again at the end of verse 2, being in full accord and of one mind. Both meaning agree. And incidentally, this redundancy holds the same place in the series of four clauses as the last one, either side of the main idea, complete my joy. Now, this has all been very technical, and thank you for indulging my nerdhood. But why do we care? The thing is, none of this has happened by accident. It was intended by Paul and appreciated by his audience. These are people who lived in a world of natural order. The emperor wore the most magnificent clothes because he was the most magnificent man. When they walked into a majestically crafted temple, they saw the glory of the gods, and fine ideas belonged to fine speech. If it wasn't worth saying well, it wasn't worth saying at all. Paul didn't put it all like this to dazzle and blind us with what we would nowadays call empty rhetoric. To him, rhetoric was anything but empty. He dressed up the truth like it was the truth's birthday because that's what the truth deserved. And, while it may take some deciphering for us, hopefully now that we understand it, we can accept it in the spirit in which it was offered. Mm -hmm.